Well, that wasn't too shabby. I was going to say that sounded almost as good as when Heather and I sing together. Kendra, just know that this is your second home, okay? All right. Would you open in your Bibles, please, to Luke 19? I can't think of a better way to honor the Lord than by digging in to Holy Week and what happened on this particular Sunday that we honor today. Uh, Rather than Jim doing something different or strange or esoteric or whatever, let's honor the Lord by digging into this passage. I foolishly thought that maybe I knew all there was to know about this, but you can never plumb God's word enough or deeply enough. There's always new treasures, and so my prayer is that as we dig into his word, you'll have new revelation, new little nuggets that will help you in your walk with Christ. So, Father, we do pray that. We pray that um, you would quicken us by your Holy Spirit as we read your word, and that new revelation would come and We just thank you for one another, thank you for the love that's in this place, and thank you that though the world celebrates April Fool's Day, we are no fools, Lord, unless it's fools for Christ, because we have not believed cleverly devised myths when we believed. We know the one in whom we have believed, and we honor you today. We pray you'd give us a a good attention span, great sobriety, Lord, as we look into your word. Help us to dig deep and apprehend more fully this week than ever before uh, the gospel story and the riches of Christ. We just bless you and praise you. I pray for my friends, my brothers, and my sisters in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's start in uh, verse 28 of Luke 19, either in your Bible or your electronic device, your Kindle Fire, perhaps. It says, and after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village opposite you, in which in which as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest 
Some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these became silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave, you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. I've tried to immerse myself in this uh, description of the triumphal entry Uh, That depiction is in all four of the Gospels. And as I've tried to immerse myself in it, I have come away with some very overarching uh, impressions. The first of those is that this event was highly scripted by heaven. It's as if everyone had their part. For example, we're not reading John's account of uh, the triumphal entry, but in that account, he lists four distinct crowds or great multitudes, he calls them. The first is in verse 9 of chapter 12 of John, where he says, a great multitude of the Jews. These were uh, those who were in Jerusalem. It consisted of the, the rulers and the chief priests, and they were wondering if Jesus was going to come to the feast. And um, so when they heard that he was in Bethany, they went down to check him out and to check out Lazarus. This particular crowd was not friendly to Jesus. John tells us that by his use of the term of the Jews throughout his uh, account of the gospel. In verse 12, there's a second crowd made up of the common people, the pilgrims who were traveling up the road to Jerusalem that day. A third crowd were the miracle witnesses, those who had seen uh, Lazarus rise from the dead. John talks about that crowd also being there. And then there were, in verse 18, the sensation seekers, those who heard about Jesus' miracles and they wanted to see uh, those who had been affected by them and perhaps see a miracle themselves. So there were at least four different crowds that John describes. Then there were the zealots. Do you remember the zealots? The, uh, what some people have called the first century terrorists. Uh, they would carry a dagger in the folds of their robe, and uh, as they walked past a Roman soldier, they might just discreetly slip their blade between his ribs and then put it back in the folds of their robe and keep on moving. They were hoping, of course, that Jesus was the Messiah, and would throw off the Roman oppressors, and that the throne of David would be established for all time. Imagine them sprinkled in the crowds 
with their hands on the hilt of their daggers. There was the infuriated religious elite, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who wanted not only Jesus, but also Lazarus uh, killed, because many were believing through Lazarus as well as Jesus. John, in his gospel, talks about seven miraculous signs, the culmination of which is raising Lazarus from the dead, a precursor, of you will, if you will, of Jesus being raised from the dead. Then you had the intellectually convinced but afraid. In John 12, 42 and 43, it tells of even rulers who believed in him, but they wouldn't confess him. Uh, why was that, you guys? Why wouldn't they confess him? They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue, weren't they? God forbid that we would be like these, intellectually convinced, but afraid to bear the name. Then there were those who truly believed in him. For example, and Jim did a wonderful job in a sermon that he wrote years ago on listing those who were there who truly believed in Jesus. Lazarus was there. He had seen the other side and knew something of the glory that belonged to Jesus. Mary and Martha were there, weren't they? And Martha had made this clear statement. She said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, even he who comes into the world. Mary and Martha were there. Mary Magdalene was there, the woman who had been delivered of seven demons. She knew something about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The man who was born blind was there. Blind Bartimaeus was there. Zacchaeus was there. The twelve were there. Peter, the one who had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was there. And many more who had been forgiven, delivered, and so on. So as he entered Jerusalem that day, Jesus was declaring publicly and powerfully that he is the Messiah. Another great impression that I had in immersing myself in this story is that heaven was dropping a Jesus bomb that day. Now, that term, a Jesus bomb, uh, I heard from an Australian pastor who said, sometimes you just have to drop a Jesus bomb and let God pick up the pieces. And I kind of like that. It stuck, it stuck with me. Third, there are some truths and some symbols and some messages in this passage that I don't want to be lost. The event was fraught with deep spiritual meanings, great manifestations or signs of the kingdom, and profound messages for each of us to apprehend. So let's begin looking in a little more detail at the story. As Jesus entered Jerusalem that day, he was declaring publicly and privately that he was the king, he is the Messiah, he is God, and he is the Lord. You remember that for most of his ministry, he, he, um, he worked hard to keep his true identity under wraps, didn't he? Um, Think of, uh, I think of Mark 3.12, where the demons were crying out, you are the Son of God. 
And it says that he earnestly warned them not to make him known. Then in Mark 5.43, when he had raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead, he said to the parents and those in the room, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Imagine being a parent of a child that Jesus raises from the dead and he tells you, don't tell anybody about this. And you've got people outside who knew, knew that, uh, that she had died. I wonder what you would say. In Matthew 17, 9, after the transfiguration, they're coming down from the mountain and Jesus tells Peter, James, and John, don't tell anyone about this vision. In Matthew 16.20, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. Actually, it says that he told them to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then in John 6.14 and 15, after he fed the 5,000, he sensed that the crowd was going to take him by force and make him king. And so what did he do? He withdrew by himself up into a mountain place alone. But now on this day, he is letting the cat out of the bag. He is declaring to all that he is the Messiah, the triumphant king of the universe. How do we know that? Well, the first clue is in verse 31 of our text, where he tells his disciples to tell the owner of the donkey, the Lord has need of it. Have you ever caught that before? That Jesus referred to himself up until this time as the Son of Man, didn't he? But it's, it's, he, he throws caution to the wind here, if you might, you might use that expression. He lets the cat out of the bag and he's, he simply says, tell the owners the Lord has need of it. And so that's what they do and all goes well. Next, he sets himself on the back of a donkey to ride into Jerusalem in the fashion of a conquering king, doesn't he? He deliberately sets himself to intensify the excitement of the crowd and send a clear message of his kingship. He allows the people to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118, and it's a psalm that everyone knew was a psalm of conquer. In fact, it was called the Conqueror's Psalm. William Barclay, a famous author and commentator, writes about this psalm. He said, this was characteristically the Conqueror's Psalm. To take but one instance, these very verses were sung and shouted by the Jerusalem crowd when they welcomed back Simon Maccabeus after he had conquered Acre and wrestled it from Syrian domination more than a hundred years before. There is no doubt that when the people sang this psalm, they were looking on Jesus as God's anointed one, the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who was to come. And there is no doubt that they were looking for him as the conqueror. To them, it must have been only a matter of time until the trumpets rang out and the call to arms sounded and the Jewish nation swept to its long-delayed victory over Rome and the world. Jesus approached Jerusalem with the shout of the mob, hailing him a conqueror in his ears. 
Yes, in this simple act of getting on the back of a colt and riding up the hill into Jerusalem, he was saying, I am the Messiah. He was dropping that Jesus bomb, and it was hitting Jerusalem with full force. That's the first truth that we must grab a hold of, that this was his public declaration that he was and is the Messiah and the King of kings and Lord of lords. A second great truth that we cannot lose is that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. Amen? Many of you I know rec- uh, remember Zechariah 9.9. This is a very key messianic uh, prophecy for this day that we celebrate the triumphal entry. Just a part of it is, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus was very aware he was fulfilling prophecy, wasn't he? He especially wanted his hearers to know it so they would see that he indeed was the Messiah. He said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So let's just take a sampling. He fulfilled prophecy. I'll just list eight ways. He fulfilled prophecy by being born in Bethlehem. That's from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He fulfilled prophecy by being preceded by a messenger. That's in Isaiah 40, verse 3, Malachi 3, verse 1. He fulfilled prophecy by entering Jerusalem on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9, verse 9. He fulfilled prophecy by being betrayed by a friend who ate with him. Psalm 41, verse 9. He fulfilled prophecy by being sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, verse 12. He fulfilled prophecy because that money that sold him was thrown into God's house and used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, verse 13. He fulfilled prophecy by standing silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, verse 7. And he fulfilled prophecy by dying by crucifixion, Psalm 22:16, Zechariah 12:10. And Isaiah 53, 12. You may remember from a year ago that contemporary Christian scientists and mathematicians and apologists came together to calculate the odds of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man. And after outside validation, confirmed the odds at 10 to the 16th power. Now, how do you get a hold of that? Well, that's one with 17 zeros following it. The odds that one man could fulfill all of these eight prophecies. The chances of winning this week's mega million jackpot of $640 million was 176 million to one. These odds were compared to the odds of getting struck by lightning and dying in a plane crash on the same day. Did you hear that on the news? Um, 10 to the 16th power, 
the odds of one man fulfilling these eight prophecies is 50 million times less likely than winning this week's lottery. Is your head spinning yet? Yeah. Scholars agree that Jesus fulfilled at least 60 major prophecies, not just eight. And some scholars say it was over 300 specific prophecies. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. That's a second great truth here. A third is that Jesus was ascending into Jerusalem that day and would soon ascend all the way up to the cross where he would be lifted up and draw all men to himself. He was on a mission of salvation. So he was not just fulfilling prophecy. He was not just declaring himself king and messiah. The third great truth that we cannot miss is that he was bearing salvation all the way to the cross. Zechariah 9.9 again says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? He is just and endowed with salvation. What was the fullness of his mission? The one endowed with salvation? Well, it was to suffer and be mistreated, to stand trial as the king of the Jews, to be scourged and nailed to a cross, to be crucified, taking the sins of the world on his back, to finish his work, he said, to descend into hell, to break the power of sin and the law, to overcome the world, to make many resurrection appearances, to ascend on high, to lead captive a host of captives, to be lifted up into heaven, to send the promised Holy Spirit in power, to give gifts to men, to lead His church, to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Can we say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Can we say hosanna? Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. I was thinking about, this is a tangent, but I was thinking on the way to church about, now Jim, don't get, don't get too excited. And uh, I started to think about the Knights of the Round Table and how they had names, and I was thinking of the elders, and I was thinking of Gordon the Fanatic. You know, they had these, these after names, Gordon the Radical, you know, uh, Bruce the Wise. Uh, Jim, the Ancient of Days. <laughs> Bill, the Faithful. Joel, the Evangelist. Dave, the Servant. And Jim, the Excitable. So. <laughs> so, these great truths, I, I don't want us to miss them. I want them to always be there in our minds and in our hearts that Christ was declaring he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords as he went up that hill that day on the colt's back. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now let's move to some signs or some manifestations of the kingdom that are also in this story. First of all, the day itself, the Sunday before Passover, the date of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem corresponds with the 10th day of Nisan on the Hebrew calendar. This is the day traditionally of each year on which the lamb that was to be sacrificed was chosen and separated from the rest of the flock for the Passover meal later in the week. Isn't that beautiful? As John the Baptist cried out at the River Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And in that simple act, he was separating himself out for sacrifice on that day, the 10th day of Nisan. Second, the garments and the psalms, uh, excuse me, the palms that were laid down. There's some significance to those. Laying down one's garment in the ancient world was a sign of submission and honor to a king. We see this in 2 Kings 9, 12, and 13, where it says this, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, king over Israel. So the people hurried back, and each man took his garment and placed it under Jehu on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Palms are a symbol of victory and rejoicing, as in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. If you'd like to, please turn there and let's, let's read that together. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12, and watch for the palms. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Just a simple question, are we hanging on to the palm of victory in our hands? And have we laid down our filthy garments in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords that we could be robed anew in robes of righteousness? I know you have. I know you have. Garments and palms. The next is the sign of the donkey. When a Roman general returned from war, his procession of victory, he would lead seated on a horse, a horse was a symbol of war, but a donkey was a symbol of peace and humility. One scholar says it this way, this was itself a demonstration of the peaceable nature of the mission of Jesus. Zechariah 9.9 describes the joyous coming of the King Messiah. 
He is righteous. He is gentle. He's bringing salvation. He's riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace to the nations. Nothing further from a zealot's view of the Messiah could be imagined. Also, there were the rocks. How many of you, are like me, I'm fascinated by that phrase, even the rocks would cry out um, if I told those, my disciples to be silent. Creation is often uh, poetically and metaphorically depicted as praising God, as in Isaiah 55, 12. We sing this song, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Uh, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Some of you young people might not know that song, but those of us with some mileage on us, we know that song. But here's what I didn't know. Sometimes um, the scriptures men mention mute stones as uh, bearing witness when sin has been committed as well. And in this case of the triumphal entry, the sin of not offering praise when praise is due might have been meant by Jesus. I have three references for that. I won't list them, but if you're interested, come see me. May I remind you that we are called living stones, living stones destined to live for the praise of his glory. How many of you just, there's something in your heart that is just uh, on fire to live for the praise of his glory? How many of you are just, you're there. I want to live for the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. There were the rocks. We could mention the tears of the Lord as well as he wept over Jerusalem. We never read that he laughed. But on more than one occasion, he wept, didn't he? Indeed, Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows, one well acquainted with grief. And here we have the great ambassador from heaven coming into the city of God, his city, knowing he would not be received, he would not be respected, but he would indeed be rejected by his own people. This is reminiscent to me of John 1 where we read there, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but those were his own, did not receive him. And finally, one last symbol, one last sign is the Lord in his temple, the people hanging on his every word. No longer a boy of 12 years of age. You remember how in Luke, those early chapters, uh, his parents went away from Jerusalem, but he stayed behind unknowing to his parents, and he was in the temple. The scriptures say listening and asking questions. He's no longer a 12-year-old boy asking questions and listening. He has driven out the money changers, and he has symbolically taken up the throne in the temple, and he is teaching the people 
And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's surrounded by his enemies. Imagine that. Surrounded by enemies as you teach. And they are powerless to do anything. Why? Because the people are hanging on his every word. These manifold manifestations of the kingdom of God are, are just breathtaking in and of themselves. So what are the messages for us? Just briefly, I think uh, what comes through to me, first of all, is the need we have to continually ask God for spiritual discernment. Nobody knew what was happening that day except Jesus. This bomb is dropped. People are running, yelling stuff, and uh, thinking things that are just not accurate. And even on this side of the cross, even being filled with the Holy Spirit, we have to ask for discernment to see things clearly. I remember coming down to Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1982, thinking that I was going to go to ORU and go back to Minnesota and pastor a small church in the woods there Um, I was going to be that church's savior. Oh, yes. And, uh, oh, of course, Jesus was going to be the savior, but but I was going to help this little church. And here I am in Tulsa, Oklahoma, having raised our family here, knowing all of you. I, I never would have dreamed that we would spend our lives in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. What a privilege to know you. What a blessing. Uh, for you to even let me get up here and speak is a miracle. But in John, there is a verse uh, in John's account where he says um, in verse 16, these things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so, like the disciples, even on this side of the cross, when we face challenges and trials, we need to be praying for God's discernment, don't we? Because we can't see clearly unless we're really seeking God. Secondly, there's a need, I think, for the courage that Jesus showed in this situation. There he is in verse 1. He goes on ahead of the crowd. Did you notice that? Verse 1, he's leading the crowd. He's not in the middle of the crowd. He's not behind the crowd. He's out in front. Other places the scriptures say he set his face like flint for Jerusalem. So there he is out in front showing that great courage Sometimes we need to do the hard thing, don't we? Sometimes we need to go the hard way. Sometimes the path of least resistance is not the best path. Sometimes we need to drop a Jesus bomb and let God pick up all the pieces. I can honestly say that I, in my work with the elders, I have seen each one of them over the years drop a bomb and then just stand and see what God is going to do. I don't think they conceive of it that way, but, but I've seen the brothers each take a stand for something 
and not be moved. And, uh, and it's been amazing to see how God has used various ones in that situation. Let us be individuals of great courage as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Third, let's let Christ be our only confidence. Let's let Christ be our only confidence. The Pharisees in John's account at one point say to each other, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. They throw up their hands to one another and say, you're not doing any good. The world has gone after him. And so often in our perspective, it seems like evil is winning, that evil is taking over. But I want to remind you that God is on his throne and the earth is his footstool. God is on his throne and the earth is his footstool. The Bible says the increase of his government shall know no end. Let's let Christ be our only confidence. A fourth one out of five is that uh, I think we need to recognize the day of our visitation. We want to make sure that we've driven that stake into the ground and made that once for all eternal decision that I belong to Jesus Christ, that I'm a servant of the Most High God. I hope that's your identity this morning, that, that you are soundly saved, that you know you're saved, and, and if not, would you please let this be the day of your visitation? Today is the day of salvation. This is the acceptable time, amen? Now, we have friends and family out there. Um, we, we can also weep for them. I told you last week that uh, an old sinner friend of mine said, Jim, what do I have to do to get right with God? And, and he surrendered to God. He repented of his sins. I've seen him a couple times since then. You know what? He's smiling for the first time in the two or two and a half years that I've known him. He's reconciling with his wife. Uh, just, just a beautiful thing. It, it brings home how tired people are who are running from God. You know, we can use that as an, evangel an evangelistic argument. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of the weight of sin and running from God? I think they'll respond. I think they'll respond. Lastly, let us be his living stones that do in fact cry out. This is from 1 Peter 2. It says, and coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then a little further down, a verse that I always seem to work in, is you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Can we be those 
that have the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hands. How many would like to be that this week as you go out into our mission field? Would you stand with me and let's pray uh, briefly over this word. Father, we have attempted this morning to honor you by digging into your word. I pray that there has been a quickening, that there has been a nugget of truth for every person here. And Lord, as we head into the Holy Week, we pray that we would uh, not let the tyranny of the urgent uh, rob us of what you have for us, a deepening of our faith. We ask that you would fill us anew with your Holy Spirit, Lord, a fresh infilling and a fresh revelation, a deeper revelation than ever before about the price that you paid for us and the centrality of the cross and the primacy of Jesus Christ. We just bless you, Lord. We thank you. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to really understand. We give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.